Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. With me, as always, is that commissar, Jeff Goad, and I'm your co-host, Hoy. The commissar's in town, oh, what? oh <laughs> And this week, we're very excited to have Pete Johansson, co-host of the Podside Picnic podcast, which has run over 200 episodes now at this point. And Pete is a self-declared Tim Powers fanatic. Hey there, thrilled to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, Pete, we're glad to have you on the show. So, Pete, uh, tell us about your uh, secret origin story, both with gaming and then with speculative fiction. Oh, sure. I think the first time I came anywhere near this stuff, I was going on a long trip with my parents. I was like six or seven, and my mom read The Hobbit on the way. And that sort of got me into it. But what really like set the hook is my brother bought the blue book Dungeons & Dragons when it came out. And, you know, if your brother starts doing something, you're sure as hell going to do it. And so I got more and more involved in that. And, um, you know, with 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 role playing, like you can only go through uh, the the first co- the module that comes with the book three or four times before you start getting sick of it. And you don't have money to constantly buy new modules. Mm-hmm. So I was always hitting the library to like pull up the Cthulhu mythos or whatever and it really got me into reading fantasy and science fiction Mm -hmm. that's cool by just seeing the little hints that were dropped in the the gaming text themselves oh yeah yeah like you know the old oh gosh what was that thing called deities and demigods sure yeah that thing was like a primer for digging up fantasy novels like that's how i got into fafford and the gray mouser it's how i got into cthulhu mythos all of that stuff oh so you had that first edition with yep. the with the later redacted chapters <laughs> i i am not a young man <laughs> <laughs> well, redaction yeah things that no longer exist very appropriate to the theme of our show, show today so <laughs> Ooh, good segue. nice yeah yeah so this week, we're very excited. Well, uh, and so you just continued on. And how did you become a um, sort of collector of vintage games? What, what drove you in that direction? Oh, well, um, I, well, I mean, to, to, to quote the gunslinger, the world moved on, basically. Like, I, I ended up investing a lot of money into the old Traveler set and the old Gamma World set and, you know, those things. And it would get to the point where I would I would try and get a bunch of people to play, and all of the things that I collected and bought were out of print, and people were like, nah, let's play Torg now. And so I'm like, okay. So I started playing that, and I collected more and more, and there was a point that people stopped. And after a while, that became a process for me. Like There were, there were gaming sessions that I would play one session with people, and it evaporated because the game dropped. And I'm like, well, what happened to that game? Like what, like there's this, there's this old Avalon Hill role-playing game called Lords of Creation. And it is the combina it's this combination of an exquisite game and an idiotic game. Because <laughs> as you level up, by the time you get to about level 10 or level 12, you start being able to control time and make your own planets. Like it's ridiculous. You can't actually functionally play this game in the real world, but like as a piece of the history and how it all fits together, I like I just can't get enough of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's very. It's funny how uh, you know a lot of these games have arcane text, but they become an arcane text in and of themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. It's like they try and reach to history, and suddenly they are history. Mm-hmm. 
And I guess the, the thing to talk about is that, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, we can't we can't play this game. There might be functional reasons why you can't play this game. But now at the age of PDF and everything, the game exists. So it can be played, you know. And I know there's a lot of complaints sort of along sort of um, grognard. It's like, oh, the, the world has moved on. Yeah, that's true. But nothing has changed the texts that you have and that they're still valid and they can still be used. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's finding an audience. That might be the trick. But yes, this- there's there can be some logistical things like Torg. A game, like if we wanted to talk for the next hour about Torg, we could. I won't do that to you. But one of the <laughs> things it has is like little laminated playing cards. The, the players save and they can be like, well, let's redo that die roll, that sort of thing. And like that would be a huge pain in the butt. You'd have to reprint those. You'd have to laminate the paper. You'd have to do all of those things. And a lot of those old games have that. It's almost like, it's almost like the old school DRM for video games. Like right, they, right. Yeah. And now I guess you would use some, a, a more generic token of some sort, like a, a, you know, just an uh, amber bead or something like that. Or, yeah, or, some yeah, old, or, yeah. or man, there's probably an app, you know? Yeah. So, Pete, if you were going to recommend something for our listeners to uh, go and read to steal inspiration for their own gaming, uh, what would you recommend? Okay, I grabbed two for you. Uh, the first, yeah, like when I waved this before, Jeff, you 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 clued in immediately. I've got Jeffrey Thomas's Blue War. Um, Jeff Thomas or Jeffrey Thomas is a largely he started out as a self-published author, and he he writes about a um, a, a future setting called Punktown, and Punktown is sort of a cross between, oh, I don't know, Traveler or one of those, and the Cthulhu mythos. So it's it's science fiction to the cyberpunk side, and eldritch horrors crawling out. It's it's a very fun setting. You can do a lot of things with it. It's the chances of survival of the party are next to nil, but sometimes that can be part of the fun. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of an urban fantasy element because it's set in this sort of infinite city almost absolutely absolutely and like a lot of the world is in digestible bites because most of his work is short stories so like if you've got a if you've got a dm that does not want to invest 100 hours he could certainly invest 10 next i have uh felix gilman's the half-made world and again it's something i could go on about for a long time and i won't but the basic idea is the world is flat and there's the boundary that slowly expands, like the fog rolls out and there's new territories. One of these territories that sort of the Europe country encounters is, is just a nest of supernatural horrors. There are these two competing powers called the line, and the, the line is basically um, – Think of it as lawful evil order, and the idea is it's a bunch of um, AI-driven steam trains that try and control everybody's life. The the alternate uh, force is the gun, which is a series of about 200 guns where if somebody picks it up, they have supernatural powers. And all of this is sort of – it's definitely sort of like age of steam level, but it's such a fun setting. Hmm. Very cool. Definitely, I see you uh, like to uh, go off a little bit off the beaten path. Not that Jeffrey Thomas is an unknown quantity or, oh, yeah. or Felix Gilman, but yeah. I, I well, I mean, I felt like if I if I came here and started talking Dragonlance, you'd be like, yes, yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. What's Dragonlance? Yeah, so, <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Well, to be fair, I did bail out of Dungeons and Dragons uh, for the first time before Dragonlance came around. So, uh, what what is Dragonlance <laughs> or Planescape for that matter? <laughs> As a self declared 
Tim Powers Nut would be happy to say that we are reading what many consider his best book, uh, although there will be arguments on that, which is Tim Powers Declare. And what editions are you working with, everybody, today? How about you, Pete? Um, Audible hopes you've enjoyed this message. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> and that's with the, um, what's the, what's the name of that narrator, Je- Jeff? Simon? Uh, um, yeah, I'm pulling it up right now. Simon Preble. Yes, the Simon Preble narration. Yeah, I I read an ebook while also listening to the audiobook. The ebook version I was reading is the 2010 um, HarperCollins edition that's got the kind of blue cover with the ankh with lightning flying off of it. Um, but what was interesting to me is I was I was reading that I was listening to the Simon Preble audiobook and. It was interesting that Simon Preble kept saying "ank" instead of "ank." That- <laughs> yeah. And but then we also in our patron book club we have a book club where we meet up with our patrons prior to recording the actual episode, and one of our patrons who is from the UK was also saying "ank." So I don't know if that's like a British thing or not, but yeah, I mean that that may be it. Well, it's it's so funny, like those little things. Like on some level, they aren't important, but as soon as you notice them. You know, it's, yeah. it, it becomes the focus of, of the of the the audio book in some ways. Mm-hmm. And um, the same reader had uh, Dan. He had some. Uh, he had a lot of reasons why he uh, ultimately didn't like the book. But one of the things that threw him was that uh, a lot of the usages were American, where all the characters were British, and that threw him out of the book. And so yeah. that's fair. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're saying vacation instead of holiday yeah. and semester instead of term, yeah. things like that. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, at the end of the day, Tim Powers was born and will die a Californian. And, yeah, you know, <laughs> his worldview and language will always reflect that. He he wrote a, a book called uh, The Drawing of the Dark, which mm-hmm. is about um, Siege of Vienna, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's about the yeah. Siege of Vienna. And yeah. like you can find Americanisms all the way through it. Yeah, I couldn't find my hardcover. And so I found this copy mysteriously appeared on a doorstep two blocks down from my house last year. So it was, a message was being sent from the heavyside layer. <laughs> Synchronicity. Wow. There you, there you go. Uh, but Jeff, I believe you have the Hygaxian Word of the Week this week. Oh, sure. So our Hygaxian Word of the Week is vertiginous. Vertiginous means causing vertigo, especially by being extremely high or steep. And the sentence that it comes from is, he was sure that after this was over, he would forget, as he had forgotten before. But in these rare moments of confronting the supernatural, he always surprised himself, a craving to get further in, to participate knowledgeably in this perilous, vertiginous, most secret world. So that's our Hygaxian word of the day, vertiginous. Uh, Pete, as a Tim Power superfan, was this... Uh... How did you come into this, into and how does it fit into his overall uh, body of work? Well, um, Tim Powers has one trick, and it's a good trick, and and that is he he takes a look at a a piece of history and says, "How can I explain the things that aren't clearly outlined in the history books and make them mystical?" And so he took he took a close look at the life of Kim Philby in that area around the Cold War. Uh, for those who haven't read it, Kim Philby is a a famous British trader. Uh, he basically he basically um, offloaded every British secret to the Soviet Union for over the course of decades. And um, he was like, well, what where where can the supernatural fit in here? Essentially, 
Um, and so this book is a, um, it, it's all, it's almost like a like a spy novel, like a John Le Carre novel or something like that. But all the way around the edges is this stuff with with djinn and copying people and and the supernatural. It's it's an eclectic mix. I like it really a lot. Is it your favorite Tim Powers? It is not. What is your uh, favorite one? Um, I probably the Anubis Gates. Um, yeah, one of one of the things about uh, Tim Powers is him and his best friend Blaylock, who's another author, um, invented a poet named William Ashbless, and they went out and they published a bunch of of books of poetry from this guy and so on. Um, the, the Anubis Gates is about a person being sent back in time uh, to. Uh, well, basic, basically, this rich guy is doing it to take over the world, but he gets stuck back in time and ends up assuming the role of a historical character he knows, William Ashbless. So it's like a closed loop. And I, I just I just love how that's written. I remember reading that. I think that was my first Powers book, but I think it went over my head. Um, and I was saying in the, in the uh, book club, I think Tim Powers can be read when you're young, but I think you get a lot more out of Tim Powers when you're have reached a certain level of maturity, whether that's just emotional and, 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 uh, intellectual or actual age can help in this case. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, let's be honest, it's combat low. I mean, like yeah. there, there are times when I want to sit down and I want to see some knives thrown and there's times when I want world building and, and this guy's a world builder. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing one of our um, patrons also said is he felt like on stranger tides might be a better uh, Tim powers fit for this particular podcast, uh, for a future book for us to read, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I want to be careful because it's it's definitely one of his his uh, best written and most popular works. I bounce off it a lot. Okay, like mm. it is. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's all over the place, but like people really get hooked by the, that thing because On Stranger Tides was the basis for Monkey Island, you okay. know, that video game. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie On Stranger Tide was mm-hmm. an homage to it. Okay. Um, I'm. Are we Are we playing Trivial Pursuit? I don't know why I'm doing that at you. But... <laughs> no, no. no I, I, and it's interesting that you mentioned Bounce Off because there's been a couple of books of his – that have bounced off. And so oddly enough, even though uh, Declare might be one of his longest, it was into, to me in some ways the most accessible. And it it may be because of my interests, but I see you nodding your head as well. So yeah. w- what do you make of that, Pete? Well, I, I think part of it is, yeah, if, you, if you're interested in spy novels, like, you know, there, there's something for you to grab onto. But like the other thing is he, he really did seem to tr- try and intentionally put himself in the space of one of those uh, spy novelist writers. And so like the, the, the language, the format, the pace, and all of those things seem to really tie into uh, books that are more familiar and other writers. So, I, I mean, I feel it's a lot more accessible, too, like in a good way. Sometimes when people say accessible, they mean like the Velveteen Rabbit, and I don't mean it like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's that, it's that the prose isn't fighting you. I, I found like a couple of his books, the prose is fighting me a little oh, bit. Oh, like yeah. The, um, what's the one about like the weird stone? It's like the, it's like the, it's like his Mary Shelley version. Oh, the stress of her regard. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah. there's that that trilogy. There's there's um there's earthquake weather. There's the one with the the Fisher King uh, last right. call. Like that whole series, I think is really really rewarding. But it's also it's it's really all over the place. Like if you don't want like one character, they're going to show up randomly every seventy five pages, and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. and that's his attempt to create a, like a modern mythology based in California. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah. I mean, it's almost like he reinvented the concept of voodoo or Santeria like he tried to make a a a modern street magic mm-hmm. what I one thing I found interesting was generally when we get together for our patron book clubs there's usually a pretty good consensus on how we felt about the book as a whole that was mm-hmm. not the case today today interesting we had a real diversity of opinions and it, uh, this book turned out to be a pretty divisive book amongst our patrons um, but also of the three of us, I'm probably the one who enjoyed this book the least. Um, that's not to say I didn't enjoy it. There was a lot that I liked about it. But my two biggest complaints were that I thought it had way more content than it needed. I feel like we could have trimmed half of that book easily, and it would have been a much stronger book. But my other thing is I feel like the the taking it out of order and kind of going back and forth between time to me, didn't serve any function and actually made it harder for me to really get involved in the story. And I felt like this would have been a stronger story if it had just been chronological and about half the word count. But I'm also trying to be um, aware of and respectful of the time in which it was written. I feel like in the early 2000s, this idea of going back and forth through time was a very early 2000s thing. But I feel like if you don't have a if you don't have a reason to be doing that, don't do it. Like just just tell the story straight out. It's it's a heck of a risk. Um, I uh, can I mention politics briefly without getting too deep in oh, no, it? Go, does go, okay. Go yeah. I I don't know if you had the rule, so I wanted nah. to check. Yeah, yeah. So this this book was written right before two thousand one and was published in two thousand one. So it was it was its mindset is pre nine eleven and it's post. Um, you know, capitalism rolling over the East. Mm -hmm. And so, like, there's this there's this triumph of history, look, everything's tied up in a neat little bow and things will be fine now vibe to it that I think a modern audience finds a little off-putting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that whole end of history, Francis Fukuyama, capitalism Uh, was over. Yeah, yeah. It's like, (laughs) you just want to shake him. It's like, look what you've done, but, right. right. Um, And to... uh, Another, I think, uh, point, and as you say, it was a risk, and I think it didn't pay off for you, Jeff. It was a very the the choice of making this thing nonlinear. It was not just a zeitgeist thing; it's a thing that is very much present in the um, Le Carre and other sort of quote unquote realistic spy novels. Is that you can never perceive a thing, just like the gin in this book or the plot. You can never perceive a thing by looking straight at it. It's just too big. So you can only perceive it by sort of seeing the the how it sort of disturbs the universe around it, the way that like a ripple in the water. And so that's how why the time structure is like, oh, they're trying to piece together in their minds what has really happened. And as you say, it didn't pay off for you, but it is a sort of known um, method of storytelling within sort of espionage novels. That makes sense. He even sort of did it with the main characters because you can you can make an argument that Andrew Hale and Kim Philby are the same person. Certainly, mm-hmm. certainly, Jin's regard 
you know those two characters as the same person and they 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 have they have shared thoughts and personalities like like it's like one's the family man and one one has a sense of duty like all of those things because they've been split by the 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 mysticism that occurs mm-hmm. and that's also another common theme with espionage novels that in order to be a good spy you almost have to be flawed an empty vessel that things can be poured into so that you can actually take on the role of being you know whomever right i like that i didn't even right. that's neat and so, and the jinn themselves are sort of right. The jinn also like they think a thing and it happens, or they remember a thing and it happens again, right? And so they are also sort of weird and empty in their own way because they're they're flawed creation, right? They're fallen angels, right? But they're not true devils. They just, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just sort of they're they're almost like oh, what were those things called? The the, the giants in the earth in the, the Bible, ne- the nephilim. Yes, yeah, thank yeah. you, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think all of this is really illustrating how what we what we bring to the text based on our own lived experiences really flavors our experience of it. And I think mm-hmm. that's why we saw such a diversity of opinions in the patron book club, uh, the person in our group who um, most vehemently did not like this book was da- was Dan and Dan is the one who's also British who noticed that the, he was using all these Americanisms, even though these are British characters. But also he's he he was pointing out that there were a lot of historical errors that were really bothering him. But he's somebody who like really is like passionate about these things. And he also has lived in Moscow at a certain point in his life. And the way the way Tim Powers was writing about Moscow didn't make sense to him. And he felt like it was clearly somebody writing about Moscow who'd never been to Moscow. Um, so. And and then as you guys are talking about this, this the way these espionage novels are written, I've I think this is my first spy novel. I've never read one of these before. So the two of you seem to be like very much um um this is this is a genre of literature that you're interested in, that you know a lot about. This is my first time in. I did I, I there was a lot that I liked about this, but there's also a lot I didn't like about it. Right, right. And as you say, bringing to it, and, and this is why a book, this is a book that rewards some actual life experience, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd never really thought of it that way. It's like, this is first spy novel. I it, Probably not the best place to start, but I... <laughs> <laughs> also, um, Dan's probably biggest concern, I would love to see what your thoughts on this are, Um Actually, Hoy, I bet you can. You're, because you're 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 better with the historical stuff. Can you explain it? Because I think you have a better grasp sure. on it than um, I do. So he's articulating. So uh, I mean, in the the gist of this book, obviously we have these jinn, these spirits that can somehow, under the right circumstances, alliances can be made with them. And and so the Russia and then subsequently the Soviet Union has brought a jinn down from Mount Ararat, which is the sort of the guardian angel, but it's really a guardian demon of of Russia, right? Um, so what Dan found uh, incredibly um, distasteful was that using real-life historical atrocities as, in this case, the, uh, the oh. purge, the Soviet purge, and the Ukrainian Holodomor, the sort of pre-Holocaust Holocaust uh, that Stalin inflicted about you know, mass starvation on Ukrainians, as essentially, uh, what he, he put it as, a level up for the jinn, uh, yes. essentially. So that's, uh, I'm interested in your thoughts. I have some thoughts that don't completely counter because i don't think he, his point is completely cogent but i would be interested in your thoughts on that i i think it is it is the danger of somebody writing fantasy dealing with his with history yeah is that 
you you want to explain the unexplainable. You want to give it meaning. And like the Holodomor and the Holocaust, like these things ultimately will never have meaning. You can build explanations around things that happen, but like fundamentally, like trying to make it better that way is is a is is a it, it, it's 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 morally wrong. And so mm-hmm. I I didn't I didn't interpret it in that way, probably because I wasn't thinking about it that way but probably the next time i read reread this book i'm gonna have to brace myself because that's that's a valid point i mean mm-hmm. you 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 can't you can't excuse uh mass executions and starvation with genies yeah right right and so the only thing i could say was and i was not at all pushback i was saying like when whenever you have uh whether in fiction or in gaming uh as you say within a historical setting um how do you explain whatever you can never make it a purely supernatural explanation for actual human acts of atrocity and evil that's just not that's that itself you're correct it's completely morally wrong the only thing i could say to dan was in this case my reading of it and it did not in any way negate his reading was that it was in fact still a human atrocity because it wasn't the jinn that caused that whole little more it was the soviet paranoia and their desire to retain power that said okay well, this is not the thing that we're going to do in order to feed this gin, which is our, you know, it's a, it's a supernatural atomic bomb, if you will. Just that, like fitting a different tool into the toolbox, not changing the, that, that right. makes sense. And so that, that, that is, you know, whatever that motivation, that atrocity, and this is the idea of how we will retain power. We have to create these, and that was still a human motivation, right? Just the specific of that. But it's still very, I mean, still treading. You're, my thing is he tried to thread the needle and in Dan's case, it didn't work for him. Yeah. And, it sounds like both for UP and maybe myself, if I read it again, that it wouldn't work the second time or the third time that we look at this book. Yeah, yeah. It, like that—that's a—that's—that's a—that's a daunting point to make, and I don't want to say no. That's not how I feel until I look at it again, because mm-hmm. I mean, like I. I you got to look at that stuff closely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And honestly, that's not something I had picked up on my reading of it either, but that was a very interesting point that I thought he was making. Um, and also to circle back to, uh, you know, this end of history. Also, I had not noticed the first time how Catholic this book was. Oh I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally, literally the sacraments matter to the gin. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, baptism is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Right, and these ideas of redemption and, and these ideas of um, faith. There's characters who have lost religious faith, but they want to believe in something, right? And, and they will do evil things because they believe it contributes to a greater good and that they may somehow possibly hope to be redeemed at the end of it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, the, there's little references in the middle, even depending— even when you go to a supernatural uh, uh, perspective where they talk about the black teardrop on the heart that's removed by the sacraments, I mean, like, it's it's fitted all over the place where this is a Catholic world. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rick Byrne pointed out, who's another one of our listeners in, in the book, that, that um, Tim Powers very much is a practicing Catholic. He's said it in interviews. He's, he's not, like, even at all lapsed. He's just like, I'm, you know, I'm practicing Catholic, you know. But this is the, the book that I think is most informed by his Catholicism, which is what I was not expecting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's, there's a few things you can really pick up by reading Power, Tim Powers over and over. One, one is he's clearly a Christian. And two, the, the man loves his whiskey. <laughs> There's a lot of whiskey drinking. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. It's like every every character is drunk at one point or another, and I mean that's true of most people I know, but it's it's certainly noticeable. 
Right. Well, specifically, the drawing of the dark was about uh, beer, right? Oh, like, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, beer as a sacrament, basically. But uh, yeah, so uh, those are some of the sort of the sort of historical. But did it work for you though? In, in the, at the end of the day, you know. With well, if we're saying me, I would say yes. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I I'm not. Was it Dan? I'm not. I'm not a, at a level of historical detail with this that that Dan was clearly. Yeah. But like when I when I read this the most recent time, I grabbed a, a book called Treason in the Blood, which is sort of a breakdown of Kim Philby's life. And what mm-hmm. I tried to do was read that alongside this to try and get a piece oh, of what cool. was happening. And they they did a pretty good job of walking through his life. I mean, insofar as we're aware of the details, he's he's probably of the historical figures that I know that didn't do mass murders. He's my least favorite. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it was very interesting to see him tied all the way through. And uh, I mean, what a dick. They really yeah, yeah. went out of their way to they, you know, Tim Powers really went out of their, his way to make sure you didn't like him as a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm about to show my own, um, my own. What is the word I'm looking for here? Um, ignorance of um, of major world history and <laughs> historical events. I didn't know who Kim Philby was. And when this, when I had finished reading the book this morning, and I got to the afterward, and Dan was talking. Uh, Dan uh, Tim Powers was talking about. Um, how he was looking at the life of Kim Philby and trying to fill in the blanks. I was like, Kim Philby's real. <laughs> I had no idea. I, I, like they're, they're referring to Lawrence of Arabia and Hitler. And I obviously know those people are real, but I didn't know that any of the characters we were hanging out with in this story were real. So that's kind right. of funny. Um, but one thing that I, I, I struggled with was understanding the purpose of operation declare. There were two parts I was struggling with. Like one, I and maybe I just missed this, and you guys can explain this to me. I did not understand why they wanted this gin colony dead. I don't understand what they saw the threat of this gin colony on that Ararat. Like, why did they want to kill them? That's the first part I didn't get. And the second part I didn't get is this whole plan to shoot Philby with this like gin killing bullet. So that he then goes back to the USSR with it embedded in him, so that when he dies, my favorite character of the novel, uh, Machista Nash, uh, <laughs> so that when she eats him, uh, she will be destroyed. It seemed like such a convoluted plan to get this into her system. And I'm like, there has to be an easier way to get this into her. So those were the two parts that I was struggling with. So I don't know if either, if you guys have comments to either of those. Well, Pete, I'll let you take a pass at it, and I have a couple ideas. Okay, well, deal with the second one first. I mean, no question that it's Rube Goldberg occultism. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I will say that, like, if if I look at it from Tim Powers' perspective, like, he's just trying to explain Philby. Yeah. Like, he wasn't looking at the—like, obviously, the thing to do would be to, to like, spread— like take an airplane over Moscow and drop 400,000 of those BBs everywhere. It's crazy <laughs> to just put it in one person. Uh, what was the other thing that you were? Oh, oh, why the, are they the ki- killing? Yeah. Why do they want to destroy that gin colony? Uh, honestly, I, I think, I think it's Catholicism again. Like they're, mm-hmm. they're gin, they're demons. They must be exterminated because they're, they're an open threat to humanity. Like whether or not that's actually true, I think that's what the characters thought. And I certainly think that's what Tim thought. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, there's a little mention at the end, like 
when Hale says to Theodora, you know, that wasn't that was just the largest colony. You know, there might be other colonies. Like, and then he says lists off a bunch of places in China, and like Theodora's like kind of like has a little quail qualm in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but I think your take on why they're destroying the Jane, um, that is correct. And then from a pure geopolitical point of view, um, it seemed like they were afraid that they had brought one Jane that the, the, the England could never actually ally itself with the Jane, right? Because of the Catholicism, the Christianity, whatever. But they were afraid that the Soviets would get more Jane on their sides, right? Um, so that's why that colony had to be destroyed. Cut off from you know, uh, you know, they, they Jane can stay in the sky, but they have to be cut off from humanity. So it was more um, about sabotaging a weapon that could be used by others in the future against them. Right, right. I, right. I can, just, I can follow that. It's just like, and then the 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 Rube Goldberg quality you allude to. Um, it yeah, well is, said. <laughs> right. If they had dropped a, a ton full of BBs over the Soviet Union, that's an open act of war. Then the nuclear missiles start <laughs> firing. Right. So you have to do these little subtle stupid things and why Philby as opposed to just shooting some other random person who will get ingested by uh Machikanash is that again the implication was that she really she revels in and absorbs the bloodshed but she only really takes in the people who are in some way sanctified to her in which Philby is okay sort of a sanctified you know almost like her child in some way right um so that's my take on it. But there's a lot of gray there, and, and it's entirely possible that I'm misreading it, or he just wrote it in such a way that it didn't really land, you know, because uh, ambiguity is built into the structure of this story and, and like the Lacare-esque spy novel in general. Um, so that, that's my take on it. Yeah, it's true. You never, generally speaking, in spy novels, you never get a God's eye view. Because it, it's it's competing parts, and you're seeing through individual people's eyes. And there was a lot of that in this, where you never really got to look up and over except like when you're dealing directly with the supernatural of course and also sometimes i'm just not going to understand the motivations um of somebody for killing something else because like big game hunting i don't get it like why do you want to go to africa and kill a lion but there are people who want to do it so i guess we could use the same logic here too like let's get rid of the gin why because we want we want them dead <laughs> we don't want them around right it's it's from a yeah british empire point of view if you're a total british imperialist it's an affront to, to consider that there might be a higher power yeah. um that, <laughs> right i think you know this committed imperialist even though by the point of this story the british empire has started crumbling because after world war ii now right but they still in their mind these sort of ultra conservative institutionalists that form operation declare still think the british empire is a going thing just as much as the Soviets think that the Russian Empire is a going thing. And we yeah. want to preserve yeah. this idea of uh, human supremacy on the earthly world. Right. We are the right. things that are the most powerful on our world. If you take, again, the Catholic, uh, I mean, I could be submitting it, but a Catholic point of view, the, the, the world was, these are angels, but God's highest creation, even though we're flawed, was huma- humanity, right? And we need to be redeemed at some point, but the angels are this other thing. Right. And his like his first pass at it, especially the gin. <laughs> you know? Yeah. For, I don't know why, but this is reminding me there's a there was a, an old political saying the the most significant fact of the first uh, uh, 50 years of the 20th century was that the British and Americans both spoke English. And the most significant fact of the second 50 years is that the Soviets and Americans were both white. Hmm. And. I mean, I think I think when you're looking at Theodore and those guys looking at the empire, they just sort of they 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 look 
they look at uh, you know the entire West as an extension of that empire. So even as things are falling around them, it's like there is a, there is a continuity. Mm-hmm. 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 And that goes back to when you were shaking your head furiously about Francis Fukuyama. It's that same mindset, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> the end of history. You know, blah blah. You know, you know. Yeah. I, it's like I, in some ways, I really love seeing these guys get their nose rubbed in it, like a, like a dog who pooped on the floor. But like, do do I have to ex- experience that too? Like, let's take this over to the gaming side of the conversation, but I want to take advantage of the fact that we have access to a guest who with, with a specialized set of knowledge we don't normally have access to. Uh, Pete, Pete, what I want to know is, would this, would this setting work for Torg? Oh my God. Yes. Yes. It absolutely would. <laughs> Tell us about um, how you would do something like this in Torg. So have you guys played Torg? No, I have not. Okay. No, I've, let I've let me try lot, and but... give a three minute summary. Okay. So we, you and I right now live in, live in a universe that that's called earth prime. Okay. And this, this, uni- this universe, like all other universes, is loaded with this stuff called possibility energy. And normally it just creates options for people. But for somebody properly equipped, you can get shot and say, wait, no, I'm changing reality. That didn't actually happen. Okay. Earth Prime has so much of that energy that if another universe tries to latch onto it, it's like a mosquito getting into a fire hose and exploding. They can't do it. So what ends up happening is a bunch of hostile realms at once attach themselves to Earth at the same time. So you end up with Britain being sort of a Dungeons and Dragons realm and France being something called the Cyber Papacy and and the California coast becoming what's called the Techno Horror Realm. So there are all these groups doing that sort of sucking the pressure of the possibility energy at once so they can do it. And the Declare would work Assuming that there is another universe that has uh, Jin as an active force, because what what these different universes do is they they drop what's called a maelstrom bridge over, and then they surround it with these things called stele that sort of build a web of their own reality. So you have so core exist like we have world laws here, the way things work, and they do too. You've got to figure out a way to make those two things mesh. And so the onks that they place everywhere for declare are basically the same thing. They're they're like shields for the world's laws of this invading realm. Mm-hmm. I love this. <laughs> right. And so that reality, yeah. I mean, that was to me the favorite set piece was that that bit where they place the stone in Berlin and declare that this oh. is now part of the Soviet empire, you know, and that. And so, and the best lines in the book was right there too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, um, uh, the whole business about it, the young man's pride. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Where, where, where Philby and, and, oh God, what's his face? The made up character. Andrew, um, Andrew Hale. Yeah. Thank you. Our yeah. Hale are talking and um Phil, philby is like well you you know uh boy i went out and and checked my shoes and you hadn't cleaned them and he's like oh did i uh, uh did i hurt your young man's pride and uh andrew hale goes i'll thank you to keep my young man out of this you know I just <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're right this is sort of setting your boundaries and then um this, uh, I mean, a major theme in this book is, is this kind of crossing of boundaries, right? This constant crossing of boundaries, whether it's climbing up Mount Ararat, 
It's whether it's the heavy side layer, that layer of the atmosphere that where the gin sort of seem to dwell and radio signals get lost. Yeah. Um, and um, so, yeah, so I can see how Torg about these creating these sort of pocket realities. And then that the tricky thing again with espionage or this is learning the ground rules whenever you cross this boundary. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this this would fit perfectly as a new realm that somebody stuck on. As a side note, the first time I played Torg, one of the cool things about it is that you you don't understand what's going on. Like you like you don't know the rules behind these steles and what the the overlords are doing. So we went, me and a bunch of guys got together and destroyed a bunch of stele uh, simultaneously, and everybody that was covered under those stele died. We killed like 38 million people in our first outing. Wow. There you go. Yeah. So there you go. Total atrocity, unintentional. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Could happen to anyone, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And as we say, explain this one now, as you were saying before. No, there's no explanation. Nope. (laughs) Just dumbassery. (laughs) So my follow-up question to this then is, is Torg the ideal gaming system to run a game like this? Or is there one you would go to sooner okay well i mean i've all i'm always gonna have a soft spot for torg uh the problem is that the rules are really clunky like okay. you, you've you've got to have a you've got a dm who's willing to do math that's uh you know they've got they've got cards they've got a point system they've got something called the glory counter you're doing all of these things at once so like i love the realm more than the rule system okay um for the rule system i'd probably do savage worlds Oh hmm. yeah, okay, that makes yeah. sense. That makes a lot yeah, of sense. I mean, yeah, it's a it's an accessible one, and you you can you can add in all sorts of things. Like I don't know if you've ever played. Uh, oh, what's what's it called? The the Western one, Deadlands. Deadlands. I have so not. the I'm well, aware of the. It. The Deadlands version of Savage World uses playing cards, and okay. then other versions don't. Like, you can do all of these different things to mix and match. And so, honestly, I'd recommend Savage Worlds for just about anything that doesn't have a robust rule system. That's kind of what it's, it's like. It's like a GURPS, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to mention uh, the two obvious ones, GURPS, but... GURPS may be too fiddly for, I mean, this book is fiddly in detail, but that doesn't mean that the story moving through it needs to be fiddly. And then, of course, any attempt to do modern horror or Call of Cthulhu is obviously an obvious one to look at as well. Yeah. Uh, especially cosmic horror. But I can see Savage Worlds um, because it's it's more fast moving. It's just detailed enough. Yeah. Right? But it's also, um, so, and in fact, uh, we were talking about, uh, I don't know, um, Ken Height, who's, uh, Ken and Robin talk about stuff, he's a game designer. He's whole premise declares one of his all-time favorite books and his whole premise is that um there's nothing more interesting than the real world you can't make up a world that's more interesting than the real world but he wrote something that is not i won't say it's declare like declare but he wrote a, a thing for savage worlds called um after ragnarok so in which the nazis summon up to attempt to create the ragnarok and then the the midgard serpent arises and then the british and um the United States, instead of dropping a nuclear bomb on Japan, drop it on the Midgard Serpent's head. Yes, and so it collapses, but it's a 20,000, becomes a 20,000 mile wall that wraps around the earth and creates all these toxic zones. And so people have to like climb the serpent. Like the rest of the, the world is literally cut in half because it's one half on one side of the serpent, one half on the other side of the serpent. It's too high to fly over. People have to climb it, you know, uh, 
That's and then, pretty so, cool. Wait, but you can climb right. over something you can't fly over? They didn't have planes that could, well, they might have some, you know, it's like 20, 30,000 feet high. So, like, you could climb Everest, right? Or climb oh, through okay. it. Or, you know, it's like a dungeon at this point, right? But it's, but it's a radioactive serpent that's like 1,000 miles wide and 20,000, 20, 30,000 miles long. That's wild. That wraps around the Earth. But it's like, it's like the immediate, it's almost like the clear because it's immediate area right after World War II where things are still in flux, you know, um, like this Berlin was still an open city here at this point, right? The Soviets have surrounded it, but there's a French sector, a British sector. Uh, so things are not as locked down as we think they, you know, as our sort of like immediate image of history was, right? And so this is also a thing where it creates this thing like, oh, we won the war, but no, this thing happened <laughs> and something else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so um, I'm not saying that it was a direct influence, but it might be one of the things that Ken Hyde had in the back of his mind. And But the, the reason I mentioned it is because it was sav- set for Savage Worlds and for Fate. And so those two systems seem to be just open enough to handle this kind of gaming where at one level it's grounded. And then at one other level, you have something completely fantastic, like a single djinn that is the guardian angel of the Soviet Union, right? That, you know, revels in the blood of millions, right? So. No, I, I love that. I'm going to have to check that one out. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it was like one book and then a bunch of like shorter like little PDF things where you go, okay, you can go to Burma. This is what like Burma is like now, or this is what like this area is like now. Um, did you guys ever play World of Darkness? Jeff was a big World of Darkness player. Yeah. Would that work? I mean, I, I don't know. Like, normally that's a storytelling game, and I don't know what stories you could tell with a djinn, but otherwise, certainly the secret world aspect works. Yeah, I 100% think that could work. Um, most likely that means you would be playing you know, vampires or werewolves or mages that are somehow associated with this stuff. I think mage, especially mage, the Ascension could be one that would be really interesting to work into this. Um, But yeah, absolutely. This could work as a setting for that. Right. You can see the gin being in scale, like, um, like the older vampires, right? Sort of like a relative scale. Like, I mean, some are obviously like the old, the old one, whatever the the phrase for the ones that are asleep and you know yeah. will wake up at the end. Antediluvians, I think. Antediluvians, yes, right? Yes. Um, I, I I remember towards the end of that, they were starting to do like hunters hunted, you know, where you could play the actual humans in this world of darkness. Um, but I don't know if how that scaled and, and played appropriately. But the, but the idea of a secret history underlying an actual history, I think. Um, is you know a, a very appealing one, so I think a lot of games would attempt it. And I guess the question is whether you would become powered up in there, or you would always just be human in a, in such a setting. Right. Um, yeah, yeah I, I guess it, I guess it's something because it is secret. You could just fit it into a lot of realms. I mean, it's almost like which ones wouldn't work might be the discussion. You know. Now, Jeff, what would your pass on it be? So, what would my pass on what be? What on doing a declare game? Yeah. Oh well, I mean, I probably wouldn't. Um, just cause I mean, and it's not, it's not because I feel one way or the other. This just, this isn't a genre that I, sure. I know well enough and, and have a passion enough for to want to yeah. do, but as a player, I would totally be down to, to, to play in a, um, kind of a supernatural spy game. And yeah, mm-hmm. um, we had one, we had one of our, um, participants in the patron book club say that he loves this book is, has, has just read it for the second time. And he really wants to do a declare campaign using Blades in the Dark. And I think that could be, I think that's a really cool idea. And I would totally love to be, if I, if I had more free time right now, if I wasn't in my final semester of grad school while working full time, 
I would have totally been like, hey, do you have an opening in that? But <laughs> right now, I, I don't have that availability. Jeff, how do you fit this podcast in? That's madness. Yeah, I know. Okay, sorry. I'm not, I'm not trying to pop you out. <laughs> well, for most, of, for, for most of grad school, I also had two podcasts, and now I'm down to one. But yes. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, and I yeah. had a weekly D&D game that's now a bi-weekly D&D game. Right, right. I mean, there's definitely mornings. Uh, Jeff, I finished early this time, but there's definitely been mornings when I've been reading up till like five minutes before the podcast recording. So, <laughs> yeah, that was me. I I I read chapters seventeen and eighteen um, a little after midnight last night, and then I read like the epilogue this morning. Well, I have um, I I have two dogs, one of which is 120 pounds, so I I walk for about three hours a day, and mm-hmm. so. You know, Audible has been a godsend for me for things like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, since a lot of the people who listen to our show play a lot of fantasy role-playing games like D&D, um, just kind of the nature of what this podcast is, since it comes from the Advanced Sessions and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide Appendix End List. Um, I'm curious, are there things from this that could be lifted and used in D&D? Well, you know, I think if you gave me money and said does port some things over to D and D like, I think you could do it. Like you, you could, you could design a gin that was sort of like this, but I don't, I don't think you do either realm justice. Yeah. Like I think it'd be really hard. Just, it's mm-hmm. not a genre match. You don't think. Yeah. That, yeah. Because I mean, most of it is, is the sort of hidden world vibe and in, in D and D like, like, okay, nobody knows what's going on with the drow, but they're a bunch of guys wandering around with weapons and you kill them and you take their stuff. Like it's a totally different vibe. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I don't think mechanically you could do this, but I think you could take the idea of a cold war contending forces, uh, gaining alliances of higher attempted higher powers that could work in a DD game but it wouldn't be declare exactly right and you could create a creature that has the sort of ominousness ominousness yeah of the, <laughs> the jinn, word yeah, of the jinn i think there was ominosity ominosity but again also the nature of um you know magic is an open force in a typical DD world characters yeah. do level up to a certain point where they actually approach the power of these things yeah um, I mean, potentially, oddly enough, it might work better as a DCC game because then the djinn become patrons, right? And, or, or something like that. And, and there's a cost to being, you know, being allied to the djinn, mm-hmm. right? That makes um, sense. So, but as a, as a straight D&D game, I think it'd probably be a little bit tougher. And this doesn't really build off of what it, the question that I just asked, but one of the things that this did bring up for me while I was reading this book was um, thinking how interesting it was to be reading... Um, science fiction and fantasy where Christian mythology is real, but it's not quite what we think of it. Like there's a lot more going on. There's a lot of mystery around it. Um, the texts that we have now, some of it's true, some of it's not true. Um, I thought that could be the foundation of a really interesting role-playing system. Yeah, I mean, if you described it to me without me reading this book, I would think, well, you know, a lot of people are trying to escape all that stuff. But here, it's 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 different enough from our perceived reality that I I think I yeah that that would work for me. Yeah, right. I guess it would depend on how much um, how sacrosanct and or how much baggage, even if you were elapsed. I mean, like uh, again, when one of our listeners was saying, he, what he really liked about it was that even though um, he said that 
it would be interesting for someone who was raised religious, even if they were no longer religious, because at some core gut level, because of having been raised, you might be like, but maybe this stuff is real, right? Um, even if you're like, no, 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 it's ridiculous. So even if you're completely counter to this, uh, and some of the they talk about some of the characters in here, like, again, who have lost their faith, but still want to believe in something higher. So it could be interesting to play a game like that, um, again, using... Um, sort of arcane aspects of uh, Christian uh, lore. I mean, there's the there's the Apocrypha, the Book of Enoch, and all this other stuff like that. Uh, the risk is obviously because it is a currently practiced religion. Yes. <laughs> like, how offensive do you get? That's yeah. very fair. Potentially offensive are you? You know? Yeah. And, and um, next thing you know, we're going to be stabbing up the Virgin Mary and finding out how many hit points she has. Right. right. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say the same thing, even with a game about. Um, Voodoo, you know, we should be very careful just because we don't practice it, and it seems like mythology to us. It's yeah. very real to a bunch of other people, so we have to be very, very careful about That's that. A good point. You know? Good point. You know. All right, so Pete, do you have any final thoughts about Declare that you would like to express? Um, you know, I really should have thought of this before you asked me, but um, I, I, <laughs> I guess, um, I I think I think you can make the argument that it's a failed experiment, particularly for some of your readers. But I think as experiment, like going out to look at books like this that are a little farther off the beaten path, really can enrich a game. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, we've 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 all we've all read Drizzt. You know, we've we've all done these other things. And if you can if you can give your players something where they need to figure out what the hell is going on, it gives them a lot more stakes. So I, I think even trying this and not liking it is a great step forward. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Pete, are there any uh projects that you're working on that you want people to know about upcoming or Oh, uh, well, I guess I can talk about the podcast briefly. Sure. Um, so I'm. if you Google Podside Picnic um, for, gosh, three years now, we've been um, doing a book club and interviewing authors and all of that stuff. Uh, next month, we're going to be starting with uh, Gene Wolfe's uh, Book of the New Sun. So if that's something you're interested in reading or rereading, you know, popping over with us and checking it out would be very welcome. Um, sure. yeah, uh, Jeff and Hoy, I don't know. I just said Hoy instead of Hoy. I'm sorry, dude. Um, <laughs> I, um, we do have a discord and if you're interested, I'd like to pop you guys links to that just so you can check sure. out what we're about. Right. But it's, I mean, ba- basically we're, we're the, um, some people use this as the research side of games, but we're primarily a, a literature and writing of pulp, you know, love it. It's great. That definitely makes time to go through your back catalog and pick the the, the books that I'm somewhat familiar with and oh, really give those a good listen. Yeah. We've got some great interviews too, like we yeah. Stephen Bruce and Peter oh, Watts. Cool, know, nice. nice. Yeah. And we recently covered Shadow of the Torturer. Um, that episode actually just released a few weeks back. That was December 13th that that one dropped. Um, and we recently had Ellen Kushner on the show, who is a fantastic guest. Um, so maybe one to think about inviting onto your show in the future. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, she's great. There you go. All right. So, um let's talk about what? The next po- next poll or Patreon? What's Sure, what's... let's do the next poll. Okay. So, the next poll is uh Elves Everywhere. Okay. So, the four books that you have to pick from are Susanna Clark's Jonathan Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Uh, the aforementioned Ellen Kushner's Thomas the Rhymer, 
Uh, Michael Moorcox, the Knight of Swords, I would call Corum kind of a fae or elf there. And then uh, Roger Zelazny's Dovish the Damned. So there you go, elves everywhere. So if you are a member of our Patreon, you can vote on those books. Exactly. I'm joining your Patreon specifically so I can vote for Dilvish the Damned. I'm saying it now. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, yes. So our patrons are not only able to vote on the books that we cover for future episodes, they are also able to join us for our patron book clubs. So I would like to give a shout out to the patrons who joined us at our patron book club today. Uh, thank you to Dan Alexander, Rick Byrne, Matt Richards, and Adam Styers. It was really fun chatting with you fellas today. I'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons as well. Special thanks to Eric, 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 Jeremy Harper, Damo Saklas, Daniel Bishop, Richard Ruane, Adam Monnier, Rose City Politics, Joseph, Adam Sternick, Robbie Fioto, Colin, Gabriel Laycock, Jason White, by Grinstow, David Ben, Angus, and Caleb Thompson. We really appreciate your support. And our next episode, episode 115, is going to be on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And episode 116 will be on Ursula K. Le Guin's The Tombs of Atuan. Also, our patron poll for episode 120, the results are in. And the winner of that poll is Peter S. Beagle's The Last Unicorn, which is the one I was rooting for. That Jeff movie is thrilled. That movie meant so much to me as a kid, and I've never read it. So I feel like this is going to be an emotional read for me. I'm very excited. There you go. So uh, please, if you uh, give us some feedback, uh, just drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. And if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. Absolutely. And Pete, thank you for being on the show. It's been so much fun having you on. Oh, it's been pure pleasure. Thanks oh, again for having me. Pleasure and an honor. All right, everybody. See you in the sacks. Read on. The library is closed.